I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Russell, did you begin the camera? Awesome. We're just looking at one verse this morning, and we're actually going to look at this in two parts. Look at the positive side of this verse and then the negative side of it next week. Considering the third commandment here from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. And our call to honor God's name. Well, I, I was, I believe, soundly converted in junior high. Actually, just before I began junior high, I went to Hume Lake Christian Camp. And I distinctly remember recognizing, really for the first time, the heinousness of my sin. My need to repent and believe. I had heard the gospel several times in church before that. But for whatever reason, really, the, the Spirit opened my eyes at that time and helped me to recognize my need for Him. Uh, it was like a, a light bulb went on, and I, I confessed my faith in, in Christ, and it truly did have an impact, and it's been having a gradual impact since then on my life. Uh, one of the first and more obvious changes that occurred in my life was this strong desire to clean up my language. Now, I was just going into seventh grade. So I wasn't, I, I wasn't ridiculous with the words that came out of my mouth. I wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, horrendous. But I just became very passionate about having kind of pure speech, having, trying to, to use language that honored the Lord. And I remember even uh, correcting those around me, feeling like that was kind of like the first sign of, of, of maturity as a believer was to correct those who I heard maybe let a, a cuss word slip out in school or something. And, um, and I remember even asking my closest friends if they would allow me to punch them in the arm if, if something came out that wasn't appropriate. Uh, that'll really get them, on, get, them, get them whipped into shape, right? And um, yes, I realized that this was a very immature response. Okay? I was, as I said, in junior high. Okay? I, I had a, a lot of growth to do, um, so cut me some slack. But, but there is something to that, isn't there? There should be. There should be something to the idea of the things that come out of our mouths, as we just read. There's something quite revealing about what comes out of our mouths. And if we're using coarse language, if we're, if we're comfortable cutting people down with our words, calling names, um, then I think there is room to feel some shame. We should feel shame. And so I can assure you, I, I, I no longer am quite so easily offended by cursing. However, it's probably not a sign of my maturity that I'm so readily comfortable now with language, that I tolerate foul language much more readily. I'm not, I'm not sure that's a good thing. I, in fact, I think it's a bad thing. Not that I should go around punching everyone who cusses. That's, that's not helping either. But there's something to think about here. Right, our instinct to correct someone's language is telling. 
because it's one of the first things that should be corrected in our own hearts when Christ fills it. And so as we consider the third commandment this morning, it's related to our language, but it does go deeper than cursing or swear words. In fact, that language of curse and swear words is originally attached to making oaths and vows, and we've kind of broadened that language now, the domain of that, that word, to say anything that's coarse or, or filthy. But the language actually was related to using the name of God to, invo- to invoke God's name in a, an oath, in a vow, to say, to say, you can trust me because I'm swearing by the name of God. Right? It's, it's invoking a curse if I'm lying to you. And this, is, this was in mind in this third commandment of correcting that, that flippant use of God's name. It calls us, though, beyond that to think, to think about how we think, how we speak, how we act. Right? Are they consistent with our profession of faith? And so it is a broad topic. The third commandment is specifically related to our relationship with God. How we relate to our maker. How we speak, how we think, how we act in relationship to him. And so it's expressed through our use of his name. And so this is not so much condemning coarse language in general as it is condemning an improper approach to God. Approaching God with an improper attitude. Right, with a flippancy, with a carelessness. And so before we read this verse, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can open your word and we can understand something about you that you reveal yourself to us in ways that go beyond what we can understand and, and gather from just looking at creation or even observing mankind who is made in your image. Now, we can learn something about you from creation, but we must look to your revelation to find that unadulterated and perfect revelation of, of who you are. Or that it's wrapped up in, in you, the expression of your name. So as we, as we consider coming to you and having the proper attitude and giving you a right respect and a reverence. Lord, humble us even now. Remove the distractions from our minds. Help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are softened by the truth of your word, that we might be transformed by your spirit. As you open your word to us, open our hearts to you. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the third commandment is every bit as serious as the first two commandments. 
I think sometimes we soften, we, we, we lower our guard, right? We, we, we think that first commandment, have no other gods before me, that's, that's the primary one. And everything else we kind of go, well, yeah, it's, it, they kind of get weaker as we move along. The first one, it's first, it's, it's, it's ultimate. Everything else we can sort of not think of as so serious. No, third commandment is just as serious as the first. Yes, the first is foundational. You, you don't break the third without breaking the first. But it's, it's not that we can now let our guard down and think, well, language isn't that big of a deal. The way we think, the way we act, the way we reflect about the true God, as long as we're worshiping the true God, and as long as the second commandment, as long as we're trying to worship the true God in the correct way, well, then this third one is, is, is not as important. No, that's not the case. This is serious. In the first commandment, we're forbidden from worshiping false gods. In the second commandment, we're forbidden from worshiping the one true God in a false manner. And in the third commandment, we're forbidden from devising false ways of speaking about God, ways that are contrary to his revelation. And so all three commands are equally offensive and deserving of his just judgment. Leviticus 24, 16 should shock us. It says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. That's how it happened back then. If you were caught blaspheming God, they weren't just put to death in isolation. The whole community that heard it gathered around, picked up stones and stoned him or her. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So even the visitor who travels into Israel, who ignores the command to honor God's name, who takes it in vain, should be put to death. It was that serious of a crime. And so I'm not suggesting we should operate under the same civil law of Israel's theocracy. That's, that's not my theological position. But at the very least, this passage reveals the significance of breaking the third commandment. We should never think this is a light command. The third commandment's not merely encouraging us to clean up our language. It demands more than watching our mouths. It should impact the way we speak, the way we think, and the way we feel about God. So like the first two commandments, this really is about worship. Not only in corporate worship, but how we offer our lives throughout the week to the Lord. It's about how we approach God. What is your attitude when you come before God? What is your posture as you speak to God in prayer? Not, the, not whether you're kneeling or sitting or standing. Not your physical posture, but the posture of your heart. What fills your mind and your speech when you actively and passively worship God throughout your day? The name of God matters. Names matter to everyone. Uh, names reflect a man's character. It's for, it's for this reason that we protect our name from being misrepresented. Right? We don't want to be given a bad nickname. 
And we do not want a, a poor reputation to be attached to our name. That we take pride in the preservation of our name and the reputation we have even in the community. And we can even recognize our, a desire to defend the name of our heroes, the people we respect most. Right? It's, it's a very natural thing to come to their defense, to honor them when their name is dragged through the mud. And so, you know, thankfully my name was fairly simple, remains fairly simple. I, I never had an embarrassing nickname given to me that I can recall at least. At least that was given to me in, in my face. Right? Who knows what they called me behind my back. But, but I know some people who are so disturbed by the drama and the trauma represented by their first name that they have had it legally changed. It, it feels like starting over. So much of who we are is wrapped up in our name that by giving ourselves a different name, it's like we're, we're forgetting the past. And so if our own name is such a big deal, then certainly God's name matters all the more. God's name represents the respect he is owed because of who he is and because of what he has done. The multitude of names for God that we find in scripture, and we could spend the entire sermon just reading those names and reflecting upon the character and the attributes that they reveal. It, it teaches us something about God's character. They're set uh, set forth in their relation to mankind. They reveal God's covenantal faithfulness. His compassion upon humanity. And since his name reveals what he has done, we can see that any aspect of revelation is relevant to our keeping of this commandment. We must come before God with the right understanding of his name in order to worship him correctly. God's name represents his divine and his eternal nature and attributes. The opposite of taking his name in vain is to take it up with all seriousness. Taking, it's, it's the idea of carrying it, carrying it with you. And so if you carry the name of God lightly, meaning it, you, you don't really think about him, you don't really recognize his presence, then you're taking it in vain. It's an empty thing to you. So the opposite of that is to take it up with all seriousness, to recognize the weight of everything you think, say, and do in, it, in its relationship to God. Whether you're reading, praying, meditating, conversing with others, we ought to maintain a proper recognition of God's holiness and worthiness at all times, in every place. God's name represents his redemptive acts as well, right in which he kept his covenant promises to us. And so whenever we think of, of Christ, as our Redeemer, we do well to think of him in his various roles as prophet, priest, and king. 
right? Christ, as our prophet, reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. As our priest, Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in his once offering up of himself, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and making continual intercession for us. Think about that. Christ, as our priest, offered up himself to satisfy divine justice. He took the wrath of God in our place, the wrath that we deserve for blaspheming our maker. Christ died in our place. He took that shame. And now he ever lives as an intercessor, seated at the right hand of the Father, crying out on our behalf. So that every time we fail, we have an advocate. We have someone who stands before us, who stands before the throne in our place so that we can never be cast out. As our king, Christ redeems us by subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And so we submit to his reign. We, we recognize our rebellious hearts. It's, it's kind of American to be rebellious. And, and, and rebellion against unjust laws makes sense. But rebellion against the God who who defines justice is only going to bring wrath. It's, it's complete chaos. So in light of all that Christ has accomplished for us, how can we not honor God with our lives? Recognizing Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, how, how, how can we not bring him everything? We must approach God with reverence. Everything pertaining to how God reveals himself is deserving of our reverent and holy observation. Whether we're coming before God in corporate worship, in this worship service, or in private devotionals, we must consider the posture of our hearts. Are we careless and flippant, or do we understand the weight of our activity? When we communicate about God, whether preaching a sermon or engaging in conversation or even writing a note or a text message or an email, we ought to consider our primary purpose. Do we keep the glory of God as our highest aim or are we most concerned with how people perceive us? Right, do, do, they, do they recognize how much knowledge I have in the way that I'm communicating? Do they consider the boldness that I have to speak these words? Is, is that what's really on our minds? Is that our aim in the way we're communicating? Or is it the glory of God? And that might be the pastor's greatest temptation is to make ministry about bringing honor to their name rather than honoring the name of God. And it's a temptation for all Christians, right? Does our communication about God tend to foster 
our own good and the good of our neighbor? Are we filled with humility or pride? And now I'm going to get a bit personal here. But just know that this convicted me first and foremost. I, I shared this on, on Facebook yesterday. Christian friends, we should do everything we can to protect and guard the kinds of posts and comments that we make on social media. Are we fostering the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives and in the lives of others with the language that we use? Do our words display the evidence of Christ's work in our hearts? That's not to suggest that we should avoid being honest or even controversial. And we can all recognize that the gospel itself is controversial. You can't say anything nowadays without it being controversial. Even if you try to put the, the most compassionate and gracious spin with your words upon the language you're using, it will be misaligned. It'll be maligned, I should say. Be taken out of context. Facebook and Twitter would find a way to make Mr. Rogers seem cowardly and Mother Teresa seem selfish. But Paul's wisdom to the Christian community in Galatia is just as relevant today as it was in the first century. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so this isn't to say that the fruit of the Spirit prevents us from being honest or even controversial. Faithfulness and gentleness are not mutually exclusive. Peace and patience are not incompatible. Self-control is encouraged by love and joy. Hatred of others will not promote kindness and goodness. And so we must take care with the language we use. And it's all the more important when we speak of God. God's name demands our reverence in thought, word, and deed. This is especially true in worship. On the one hand, we might become distracted from focusing on God in the middle of a church service. On the other hand, we might maintain our focus upon God with with our minds while our hearts are far from him. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth implies a spirit-wrought mind and heart that engages the whole person in worship. We can simply go through the motions with our bodies, maybe mechanically standing up at the right time and sitting down. 
while our minds and hearts are fast asleep. G. Campbell Morgan said, the man who does not tremble in the presence of God, though he trusts while he trembles, never worships and never works as he ought to do. That's reverence. Reverence is trembling combined with trust. It's recognizing the power and glory of God, but trusting him in the midst of that. Recognizing his grace and his mercy so that we don't fall away from him, but we fall on our faces before him. And probably the most neglected means of grace in the church today is prayer. When we go to God in prayer, we must come in humility. If the, the seraphim had to cover their faces and who, who remained in his presence, who were given wings literally just to cover their faces from the glory that was shining from the throne, and maybe it's appropriate for us to consider who it is that we're praying to and the glory that he exhibits. We ought to be filled with such deep gratitude that we have the privilege of praying to God as children to a father. We know that he who created all things has invited us to call upon him asking anything. In fact, Romans 8.32 says he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you're united to Christ, then you can ask for anything. And if it's a good thing, if God desires that for you, he will give it to you. He will not withhold it from you. The reality of our redemption fills us with humility and gratitude and ought to drive us to the throne of grace in heartfelt adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But unfortunately, it's far more common for us to come before the Lord in a manner that is hurried, that makes a mockery of his character. We rush through a half-hearted prayer that we have memorized because we say the same thing every time we come in prayer. We do it unthinkingly. And God is worthy of receiving our devoted attention in prayer. And this isn't about how long we pray or how articulate we make our prayers. This is about recognizing the authority of the only God who hears our prayers and the only God who's capable of answering them. Kevin DeYoung writes, no doubt God is more patient with three-year-olds who can't sit still than he is with parents who can't slow down to get their minds and hearts in the right place. It would be better not to pray over the meal at all if the alternative is breaking the third commandment. Yes, it's equally offensive to repeat empty phrases that we do not mean, or to pray lofty ambitions that we have no intention of observing. We just say them because they sound good. 
We may pray the right words, but if we fail to put it into practice, then we're no better off for having prayed. Now, you might know how to recite sentences of praise, but if your heart is not filled with adoration for the God who gives you the breath to recite that praise, then you, you're better off saving your breath. And so no doubt it's a serious matter to break the third commandment in thought, word, and deed. And it should be convicting for us to think about these things. However, if approaching God in a flippant manner results in his displeasure, then approaching God with reverence through Jesus Christ results in his pleasure. You won't start praying and worshiping with a proper reverence simply because you've now been warned by the third commandment. The law reveals your sin and it calls you to repentance. But it's also meant to point you in the direction of a Savior who perfectly and fully honored God at all times and in every way. It is only because of what Jesus has done that we even have a spot available at the throne of grace. We come to the Father in the name of the Son with the help of His Spirit. And it's because Jesus Christ freely laid down His life for us that we can humbly bow before our Heavenly Father and cry out to Him. Not only did Jesus take the sin of our blasphemous and flippant prayers, but as our high priest, he ever lives to intercede before his father on your behalf. Why would you not want to take advantage of that? Why would we forsake that opportunity? We know that we never go before God on our own, in our own self-righteousness. We go in the name of his son with the help of his spirit, accompanied by his prayers, correcting our own faulty prayers. We don't have to clean up our act before we come to him. We can fall in, on his mercy, fall before him in humble reliance upon him. And so we pray to God with a proper humility and reverence for the King of kings and Lord of lords, it's in that spirit that we can come before him, lifting up the needs of a nation that is desperately searching for light in the midst of this present darkness. We do not come to God with answers. We come with petitions, asking for him to give us answers from his word and by his spirit and to give us the enabling to share that message of hope with others. We ask him to fill us with the fruit of his spirit, to give us boldness and compassion for those who are lost and hurting, those who are living in fear, those who are living in anger and hatred. All of them need to hear this message of hope. It is the only way of restoring true and lasting joy and peace.
And we recognize that in this life, that will always be off in the future. It'll always be a distant reality. It's, it's a glory that awaits. That's why we long for it so much. Because we were made for that. We were made for an eternal kingdom that we cannot experience in this fallen world. As long as we remain in this fallen flesh. And so we take the light of God's truth into a world that has been ravaged by the evil of sin and blasphemy against her maker. And we point them to the only one who promises to bring true and everlasting justice. Right, we could summarize the positive side of the third commandment with one verse from the New Testament, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The way that we rightly honor God is to live for him. Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. As Augustine said. He made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we can only do that when we come in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which is the name that is above all names. The name at which every knee will bow in heaven and earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so let us willingly and humbly come before him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us in your word how we might rightly come before you, petitioning you in the name of your Son, recognizing that we have the help of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, transforming us, giving us a heart of compassion and love rather than hatred and fear. Lord, help us to understand this, how we can rightly serve you in these chaotic times. Help us not to be caught up in the chaos. Help us not to contribute to it ourselves, but to rely upon your spirit to bring words of hope not in ourselves, but in your word, Lord, in the gospel message. The hope that we ourselves have received. Lord, where we, we look forward to and long to receive that inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. That is unfading and undefiled. Lord, that it's reserved in heaven because if it were here, Lord, it would, it would be surrounded by corruption. Surrounded by evil. And so you preserve it for us. And yet you promise that it is ours. And that there is a sense in which we are already beginning to taste and see the goodness of of that inheritance. Lord, by your grace and your mercy, you, you give us the privilege of experiencing a small taste of worship 
in all eternity as we gather together. And, and Lord, for many of that, us, we have longed for months. We have longed for the gathering of the saints. To hear the singing, to pray together, to sit under your word in person. Lord, there's, there's something special and significant about gathering together. Not because you're not present with those who are away from us. but because you honor those who come before you, who come to you in worship in the way that you've prescribed. And so, Lord, help us to honor you in thought, word, and deed. Help us to, to think about the things we sing, even in response now. Lord, we recognize that this is your world. We have the privilege of being image bearers in this world, and we want to point them to you. And the only hope that, that is available to them in the message of your son. Lord, give us a compassion and a boldness to share that message with others for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom, and for the good of our neighbor. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.